0: you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host
1: hello and welcome to the rugby dungeon thank you for listening thank you for subscribing and thank you for following us on all the usual channels on twitter on facebook all those other things i'm at j beardmore this podcast is at the rugby dungeon and of course there is egg chasers at rugby podcast Another announcement is I have a brand new podcast. It's another weekly podcast, and this one is about politics and Brexit. Now, this is the only time I'll ever mention it on any of my rugby podcasts, but it's me, two other guys, talking about current affairs and all the things around the UK's exit from the EU. called Last Week in Brexit. It's on ACAST at the moment. It'll be on iTunes soon. And if you don't like it, that's absolutely fine, because this is the last time you'll ever hear of it on one of my rugby podcasts. Anyway, today's guest is Rob Vickerman. Probably before talking about Rob, I'm going to talk about Canterbury because I first met Rob in a Canterbury event and Canterbury have been with us now for the best part of three and a half, four years. They were with us on episode one of Egg Chasers when we had about 10 listeners, I think. They have supported us ever since. They've given us access to all sorts of big names. have introduced us to people like Rob. They've invited us down to events. They don't just support Egg Chasers and Rugby Dungeon, but they support all manner of other people reporting on rugby they say they're committed to the game and it's not just the grassroots stuff in and the playing side it's also the reporting and the content side and quite frankly without them we'd have had real difficulties particularly in in the early years so the podcast that you're about to listen to it isn't a canterbury podcast but without them we wouldn't have been able to meet rob so and again huge thanks to canterbury for all they've done in in the past now rob vickerman you may well know him from the BBC. If not, you'll definitely know him from Sevens. He's also played for Newcastle and he's played for Leeds. Incredibly knowledgeable and knows everything there is to know about Sevens. This becomes very apparent very quickly. Hope you enjoy it. So here is my interview with Rob Vickerman. What are you up to?
2: Not a lot, mate. Just um, pre- <laughs> preparing for the bit of a trip out to Vegas and Vancouver next couple of weeks. So...
1: Oh, that makes me sick.
2: Frantically looking for bits and pieces everywhere. Well, what is your schedule like now? Uh, Well, I I can't really say this without sounding ridiculous. Go on then. But basically, Vegas for five days, Vancouver for six, come back, two weeks at home trying to crack on with my business, and then it's um, prep for Hong Kong and Singapore. Uh, What's your business? Work athlete. So I do a lot of health and wellbeing in companies.
1: Oh, I yeah, I've heard about this. Is is this not the new big big thing, which is companies keeping their keeping their workforce healthy?
2: Yeah, basically, yeah, that's the premise. And then basically, I've accrued, probably in the last like twenty four months or so, different modules. We've got about sixteen modules that are all, um, both online and through um, PDFs I've created, presentations I've done, keynotes I've present and designed. It's all it's all pretty robust just kind of rolling out now so actually in some ways been away so much isn't great but at the same time it's nice to be able to hobnob with some of the aristocracy you often find on the seven series mate uh... Uh, Mate, it it sounds awesome if i was going to cover a series it would probably be sevens (laughs) (laughs) yeah not the domestic sevens not something like the premiership sevens but no it certainly is it does sound very grand prix but i must say like as a disclaimer it's not as glamorous as a player like as a commentator and for what I'm doing is slightly different because yeah. you, get to, you get to enjoy it a bit more. But as a, as a player, it's very traveling circus, like, very have breakfast, lunch, and dinner with every single team in the same massive room. Is that and, right? Uh, oh, yeah, mate, it's crazy. And the uh, next day, you're kicking the shit out of them. And then after the tournament, you're back in the hotel, sat next to them, like chatting. It's like, you know what, lads? It's, it is so bizarre. How is it organized then? Are you all on the same flights and all in the same? I guess you would be, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah, the odd odd occasion you sat next to one of the players is a little bit awkward. That's amazing. It is. It's really intriguing to see. No one ever sees that bit, but I'm like trying to say look, behind the scenes is far more interesting than playing sometimes. Like, you know, the kind of camaraderie behind it all. How you actually, literally, you pick up the tournament and you just move it to another city around the world. It's just it's just hilarious.
1: So which of the lads, then, are you still good friends with? Not necessarily from England, but from other, but from other well, countries. other countries. a weird one,
2: because now, now I'm like back on the series, in a sense. I'm really cautious about spending too much time with English lads. So I will chat a lot with the Scottish lads through the Welsh boys, uh, speak with them, and then, like, Fijians. Everyone loves the Fijians. Isn't <laughs> uh, and the weird thing is now, because I'm getting slightly long in the tooth, it's fair to say, I, uh, I know a lot of the coaches, so some of the coaches coming through are either ex-players or you know friends from domestic rugby back in the UK. So it's it's really intriguing how it's such a small circle of people. Tell me how how is the Sevens Grand Prix organised?
1: What is the format of it? Because I never quite understand it. It always seems to be on TV, and I cannot work work out who's winning what and what the tournament mm. is.
2: Yeah, and, and this is probably what you don't realise when you're in the sevens bubble, that actually a lot of it needs explaining. So my kind of resonator at the moment is to speak with likes of Sky and all the broadcasters saying, just need to make it really simple for people to understand, because it is confusing. So there's a series, which is 10 events around the world, Yeah, each of which you get different allocation of points for how well you do in the tournament. Uh, and that is accrued then to end up with a gold, silver and bronze as it's now recently changed with the Olympic format making things a slightly different. Hmm.
1: Uh, so how many points do you accrue to to win it, if, if you 22. win a tournament?
2: 22 if you win, yeah. 19 if you're second, and then it kind of goes down all the way to your bonus point. Have a point for coming. There we go, guys. Have that.
1: So, hang on. You start... So, when does the actual season start for a Sevens Grand Prix?
2: Well, it's not called the Grand Prix. The Grand Prix is the Fearer tournament, which is... Which that, is that, then? Uh, the FIRA is the european union if you like so world rugby now have different elements and areas which are regions yeah Um, that one is known as the grand prix so that's when you see that's in (laughs) there's some ridiculous tournaments in that moscow Bucharest. oh that's um, awesome barcelona Lyon. so okay uh, so the so the main what's the main one called hsbc world seven series
1: right and that goes to which 10 places dubai yeah South
2: Africa, Cape Town, Yeah, um, which is a recent one. It didn't used to be as glamorous as that. Uh, it used to be Port Elizabeth, which I know as Hull on Sea. <laughs> um, so, yeah, then Dubai, sorry, Dubai, South Africa, then Wellington, Sydney, Vegas, Vancouver, Hong Kong, Singapore, Paris and London. That's it all... is a bit of a Del Boy, Del Boy car, side of the car, isn't it? And is that all done within, what, three months um no that's december to may
1: oh my god so how much time so these squads that they assemble
2: yeah how much time
1: do you do you you actually get off how much time do you get to go and see families and that kind of thing
2: well you get a fair bit i mean traditionally when i was doing it it was bloody brilliant because we'd be monday to wednesday down in london and then the rest of it you'd be training at home so i'd be having four days at home Going away for three weeks, granted, wasn't great, but then you'd have like a week off when you got back. Largely dictated by Ben Ryan's wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <it makes laughs> things, like, sense. things like bank holidays off. Like, what? Bank holidays off? Are you kidding me? That's- um, but no, it's very different now. So now they do train quite a lot. Um, and that certainly is now more of an issue than perhaps it was. Because, you know, these full-time squads, they still get downtime. But the problem is, if you look at any given series, it's not just the World Series. Mm-hmm. It's... Your second tier, FIRA, on top of that, so your European legs. Mm-hmm. And it might actually not be called FIRA now. I actually think they've changed it to something, but I don't know. Like, you're probably European rugby in line with the ERC. Yeah. Um, and then you've got things like the Commonwealth Games, which is next year in the Gold Coast. And then the World Sevens Rugby World Cup, which is in San Francisco, again next year. So next year is going to be mental. So, wow. So there's quite a lot of tournaments then. Well, this is my point. Like these young guys I speak to about it all, like saying, look, all right, you can try and crack the premiership, get your head kicked in week on week and play some pretty, you know, full-on rugby. Yes, you get rewarded for it. Yes, you get the community and the profile and things like that with it. Or you can look at potentially filling your passport in three years, competing in potentially Olympic Games or Commonwealth Games, and seeing the world. The Yeah, that's quite an... In- it's definitely a young man's game. I'd say so, yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, even the fact that if you get to 28, 29, it gets a lot harder physically... But you know, and imagine if you're Welsh, there's even more chance you're playing. Yeah. yeah, or even Scottish. <laughs> I, I,
1: Crazy. Yeah, that's yeah. That is a that is a really good point actually. Because I I hear a lot about the English sevens team. I never hear anything about Scotland or Scotland or Wales.
2: Yeah, and th- and that's really um, debated at the moment. And without going too much into the politics of it at all, I think it may well be lucky at No, how... no, no, no,
1: go into the politics of it all.
2: Well, it's um... the whole, like, the GB model. So say you've just had a really successful campaign in the Olympics, of which they were completely written off before it. Yeah. And to be, you know, I think they'll put their hands up and say that they, you know, absolutely stole a silver, silver medal. Yeah, yeah, but agreed. Well, the happened. They now want to say, okay, well, that's the premise, that's the model, how do we build on it? So realistically, to build on an Olympic platform, you mm-hmm. need to have an Olympic model. Which is the amalgamation of the of the unions? That's but a, you try and tell that to the you know well the that, aristocracy.
1: Isn't there a good point there? Which is it's kind of like rugby league, isn't it? Rugby league used to have Great Britain, and then they realize there's only three teams in the world. Then, so <laughs> by dividing them up, it does make some sense to keep them divided and every four four years.
2: It does. I mean, the rugby league analogy is always quite funny because you know you'd, you'd say to people Great Britain, you mean Yorkshire, Lancashire? Yeah, it's, exactly. It's you know it's crazy to think that, but yeah, that, that's the that's the premise that it is. It's an international sport, but the reality is, um, you could be very specialised uh, with a team, like the GB hockey, for example, which isn't really GB hockey; it's England hockey. Yeah. But but they bring in maybe a a, a Welsh or a you know an Irish or whatever. Same with the cricket.
1: Yeah. Well, how far so ahead is English sevens compared to the Celtic nation sevens?
2: Um. <sighs> Well, the thing is, it probably comes down to the fact that the RFU, a few years back, realised that to kick on a little bit, they had to have some back into it. So the model was advanced quite significantly
3: mm-hmm. in
2: 2010 prior to the uh, Commonwealth Games in Delhi. So that was the big swing here. Right, we're going to go full-time squad. It was Literally, it was either that or we're folding it. It's going to go back to Invitational. We've got no time for it. So then Ben was pretty much um the driving force behind all that of which it did substantially change it because then you looked at contracts of which they are RFU contracts of which there are only 20 you know up for grabs oh. the senior men's are not contracted as employees of the RFU so it's a really unique situation and it's one that you know potentially can be explored you look at central tr- contracts in cricket how that's changed the game completely and yeah. obviously financially they've got a few serious backers in and the game's gone on strength to strength, probably more of the T20 type version, which is, you know, it's a common uh, resemblance of what Sevens is. It's like a shorter format and that type of thing, more entertainment, a bit more of a party, if you like, whatever. Um, but I think, you know, the the, the powers are big enough to look at it and say, well, what is Sevens? Where do we want it to go to? And how are we going to get it there? Because if you look at what resource it actually demands to have a very good Sevens team, it is substantially less than the 15's campaign. I mean you look at Samoa who traditionally would always struggle in the 15's format until recent years but they've won a World Series in Sevens. You know they've dominated. Right. That. Yeah, yeah they were amazing. Uh,
1: so um, what, what do you think the catchment is for Sevens and what do you think it's going to be useful for, for rugby going forward?
2: Um, the, I would argue differently to what is probably been cited so it's seen as a development tool as a way of getting people into rugby onto rugby and progressing with 15s potentially, I think mm. you know, the way the game is going you see it definitely merging into more of a 7s world or a 15s world, such as you know, you've know got the IPL now where it's blowing cricket to pieces because you've got these incredibly lucrative contracts to be played in India Yeah, that now clubs are going, well we can't match that, test cricket can't even match that, yet if you're on an ECB contract as England player, you're probably on at least £250,000, yet they can't touch the IPL, so you know, all it's going to take is a few individuals, and it probably will be business people, that get to the point of thinking, well, this sevens is an interesting concept. Can we monetize it? Can we maximize it? Can we get broadcasters in board? Yes, we probably can. Right, well, the first person that puts up, say, a million-dollar prize, you're going to get a lot of people with their hands up going, yeah. I'm up for this, which nearly happened, actually. Um, and I think the rumblings are that it might well be happening within the next few years. But if you look at the playing schedule, there's not much chance of that with the with the World Cup, with the Olympics, with the Commonwealths, with the series going from strength to strength. So it's going to be interesting. When did it nearly happen? Um, well, there's a 1000000 rand tournament, which Samurai won. Um, that sounds a lot, but it's obviously... Yeah, well, div- so divide 100. by 20. Yeah, well, then it was about 12, I think, so a little bit more substantial then. Yeah. Um, but then and that's what's going to happen. So it's going to be... And, and there is actually, weirdly, an IPL for rugby. Um, Sri Lanka have a, an auction format of which players can go and represent one of the franchises that can have two foreign players and a foreign coach. In Sri Lanka? So you, yeah. Amazing. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. So what happened last year was the people that didn't make the Olympics went and did that. So got you know significant money for it, but also probably appeased the fact they didn't get Olympic selections.
1: It would be very bizarre, wouldn't it, if we had a situation where you could just get team owners who are willing to pay... Well, I mean, how many lads do you need for a seven squad, would you, would
2: 12, you say? 15. 50, well, yeah, say 15 to 20 in terms of the series, the concept, but that, and that's it. You know, if you get to, you get talking about backing of some significant businesses, are Chinese or whatever, you don't yeah. know where these people could come from. It could absolutely splinter, it couldn't it? Because you, you've got people that are going to throw money at it, and then it's a player's choice of okay, do I kind of follow the the heart and play for the shirt, so to speak, or do you you take a, a lucrative contracts in one of these foreign countries? You know, it's yeah, it's it is it, really
1: bizarre, isn't it? Because not only would you just need some team owners who basically want to win, you just need one guy who says, "I really like sevens. Like, kind of like I, t- I tell you what it reminds me of—the um, Abu Dhabi grappling tournament. The shakers just decided, right? I really like grappling. There's a huge prize on, and then everyone shows up from everywhere.
2: Yeah, same with badminton. There's a few um, big wigs that I like badminton, back badminton, and suddenly you know there's interest from in all those hosting unions. It's thinking what is literally money can talk like that. It's just. It's insane, isn't it? But that, and that's you know, well, rugby. have got they've got this thing, this incredible product that you know they cite numbers of growing the game of rugby, seventeen million people. Not that I quite understand what that means in terms <laughs> of the coverage, but still, the reach was sensational. It was huge. Is there a little bit of a worry with
1: sevens though? That it's it's kind of like this traveling event. It's very glamorous. Things like Dubai sevens, Hong Kong sevens, Vegas sevens are on everyone's lists of things to do but actually you're just a- appealing to the same people. Like, I, For instance, people like me who think, oh, great, I'll go for a weekend in, in Dubai or Hong Kong.
2: Mm. Um, yeah, I think it's it's getting different, and then certainly those Olympic conversations did change things because you're looking at the fact that these are now Olympic athletes It's a different premise. Um, but yeah, I think you know, there's the traditional model. There's people that just enjoy rugby, enjoy the spectacle. What rugby sevens can't do is take itself away from the fact that people usually go for a good crack rather than to intently watch the sevens mm. and that's not to demean the sevens that's just the fact that if you take away the booze aspect of it as twickenham as wellington did did they significantly changes yeah wellington was the best tournament 2009 2010 even just phenomenal like i get goosebumps watching the videos back when we uh, when we actually won it in 2009 and it was just incredible like, you would not believe the length of time spent on some of the fancy dress of people there <laughs> Yeah, because Kiwis, it it was, you hate as an Englishman, and that was kind of banned all the way through it. It was just epic. Some of these shots, and it's all on YouTube. Some of the games are just amazing. And watching it this year, I was out there, um, and it was just so sad. Like there must have been at one point, I'd say, injured people in the crowd of twenty-five seats stadium, probably more than that actually. But it was just painful to see.
1: You do have to wonder who these people are making these decisions. What kind of joy? What kind of joyless halfwits? That the,
2: Oh, it was a plane crash. It was about 10 things. It was ticket prices climbing, media jumping on the back of it and slamming it. It was the fact that they had the, what they called the fun police, but they were actual police. And it went remotely um, perceived to be a little bit too drunk would be removed. And, and it's just uh... a way of the Wellingtonians rebelling against it. People throwing the fact that Auckland 9s was on the week after, so that took a lot of the Auckland crowd out of it. But the reality is it was probably about 10 or 12 things that all came together. And it's just, it's now letting people say, well, how can this continue? Because you've watching it on TV, and it's like it's like just it three hours before the game when it was actually the semi-final. It was just remarkable well, to see how bad it got.
1: Well, here's a question then: If the organisers decide to kill off a tournament, like Wellington decided that uh, Wellington doesn't need an extra tournament, and it you know its um, economy can do without it, can the yeah. um, can the tour organisers just decide to go elsewhere to a more friendly well,
2: venue? I don't know. I don't know the nuances of the legalities here but there's essentially a contract in place with the host union so nz ruby union would have the contract for the sevens hmm. it would then to be certain i think it is their discretion where they put the tournament um but there's certain requirements they have to admire so i, I don't i don't know the ins and outs of it jb to be honest but i think if people are voting with a the feet, then you've got to listen to them haven't you and it's the same thing happened with glasgow and with edinburgh that were just not quite there so they moved to paris Paris had a chance to have a shot at it. I thought they did really well, helped by France getting to the semi-finals last year, so that's going strong. London had an absolute clean the slate after the um, 2014 sevens because it was no, last year, and um, because it was too drunken and it was it was horrendously bad. Actually, that was probably the worst I'd seen. Is that right? Oh uh, yeah, it was crazy. So we was doing some of the um, the commentary on one side of the stadium and then having to head across to the side of the stadium. And every time we went round, there was just increasingly more and more people lying down on drips, to the point where there was about 200 (laughs) people on drips? Well, the fact it was 32 degrees, so everyone was steaming, but, you know, unsafely drunk. This was two years ago, should I say. And then last year, because they they had to react to that and all the residents saying it was unfair, and I think they probably used up all the tokens from the Rugby World Cup locally. Um, they then went, well, okay, we're going to cap it, 35,000 people. There's going to be two windows for drinking, 11 till 1, 3 till 5. If you were perceived to be as drunk, you'd be asked to leave. Till 1. And actually, it was still a good event. It was all right. It wasn't obviously what it was, but it was safer. And I think, you know, especially just a young family myself. I'd have happily took my kids yeah. there the year before. Not to, a chance.
1: To be fair, like 11 till 12, 3, uh, well, sorry, what did you say? 11 till 1, and then yeah. 3 till 5. That, that's... That's yeah. a relatively sensible compromise, to be fair.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think it was. I mean, it took away from the fact that it was just all about boozing. So even in Sydney, which was a pretty rocking stadium, it was 39 degrees there, so insanely hot. But they had weakened beer on. Really clever tactic. They were handing out water. It was handled so well. Is that right? But it, yeah, but it's a relatively new tournament, so I think they're still kind of growing it like that. But it was epic. That was that was probably into my top five, actually, um, for the general overall vibe of it
1: with these tournaments do you think it's better then to have them I in mean, established rugby rugby cities or do you think it's better to go off to say vegas because i I know what i'm thinking
2: yeah well that's again you know you don't want to move too far away from the fact it's an entertainment product so if you go to vegas you've not just got the sevens you've got a weekend you've got you know whatever you want to do there yeah i think if you look at it as a model it's completely different to any test game because you go to a test game you enjoy three hours and you leave you go to a sevens weekend it is a weekend. You know, you're doing your Friday night all a Saturday, probably having something Saturday night and then Sunday as well on a downer. So it's like, you know, all-encompassing. And the fact is, you know, I talk about how passionate I am about the game. You go to a game of sevens, a tournament of sevens, every 15 minutes, it's another team on. You're seeing international rugby players, now Olympians, compete Mm. at a very hard level. It is the most entertaining eight hours of rugby you'll ever get. And by the way, you're in Twickenham or you're in, you know, the... um, the Parisian capital stadium there, and it's just, or Hong Kong, if you can manage to get a ticket, it's just epic.
1: Yeah, see, I'd love to go to the Hong Kong one, uh, Dubai one. I'm not sure I want to go out to Saint-Denis to spend two two days out there. And that kind of really was my point. That I think it's an amazing product, but it should go further afield. I don't think it should go to, say, well, um, uh, Stade de France, for instance.
2: Mm. No, I see your point, but then, how are you going to grow a game without exploring these markets? And the thing that people could well be talking about is, yeah, okay, it's aligned slightly by the fact that HSBC are key sponsors and, and no doubt have a say as stakeholders. But if you wanted to grow the game in China, you know that this could be a phenomenal concept of, yes. of getting people to see it. And, and Germany, you know, another market not really exploring rugby uh, to the degree that they probably should be. Well, did you see that they beat
1: Romania a few weeks ago?
2: Yeah, well, I know. I actually met a guy when I was out in Cape Town who's been championing for a world rugby event in, uh, get this, the back end of September for the drum roll. Go on, <laughs> beer festival. Nice. So putting the sevens on the back of the beer festival, which oh. again, you
1: know,
2: it'd just be that'd be incredible. Well, it'd be good. It'd be a good event, wouldn't it? It wouldn't be necessarily just for the rugby or just for the beer food. you could end up getting foot in both camps which is which is a clever way in but then again it goes back to the point of what do you want from Sevens do you want to grow the game as a standalone marquee event or do you want to incorporate it as a people getting into rugby exploring rugby and perhaps taking it further you know they're the questions that need to be answered Rudy.
1: well that is a good question actually I do think that Sevens is slowly departing fi- 15s in a lot of ways I mean
2: not least the shape of the athletes yeah I think there's definite athlete change I mean I again I'm probably part of this bubble I talk about sevens as though it's common knowledge because I'm immersed in it and certainly conversations I have people know little bits and bats but the only reference I'll make to this weekend in the Italy game is the fact that every single game you will see on the world Sevens series there is a mentioning of tackle only there is a mentioning of no offside so no rugby player that plays sevens would ever be shocked by those tactics employed
3: Is
1: that now, right?
2: listen to a lot of punditry I listen to a lot of comment things going online and everyone's like, then what the hell's happening? This is ridiculous. It is absolute commonplace. You could ask any player on the World Series. They have a game plan to counter what happens when it is tackle only. Argentina, South Africa, sometimes even Fiji, England have done it previously. Scotland do it occasionally. They employ tactics that are always just one man a tackle. And then there is no sideline. Uh, I've got to say two minutes, what they should have done.
1: Well, hang on. Well, okay. That's, re- uh, that's a really good point. Let's explore that then. So, with the tackle uh, and the no side, how do Sevens teams use that? How do they weave it into their defensive plan?
2: Well, it's really, really simple. You know, if you just have a tackle only, so one player gets taken to the ground, the tackler stands up, you've got Seven on your feet, there's no one competing at the breakdown, therefore there's no offside line. You can, by right, stand in the attacking line, which we used to train for. You know, a, you know, you call it, you'd say, you know, tackle only um, in, the, in the session, and then you employ tactics to get around it. So you can stand in... In any part of the pitch apart from within a meter of the ball. Now, the difference is, and this is what people didn't realize on Saturday, that if they had exposure to it previously, it's really easy eradicated. Because yeah. if you get someone to touch you in the breakdown at all, then it becomes a rook. So you can grab them, it's yep. a rook. You, right. can, you can pick the ball up, move three inches, create another tackle area, grab someone, pull them down, then it's a rook. So if you, a pick, if you do two pick and goes, for example, you'd have created the offside line. People would have then been offside. Got
1: you. Right, or, so that, is, is that system. how the sevens team get around the no
2: uh, tackle-only rule? Pick and go. If you pick and go once or twice, you're in behind the back foot, someone competes, and then the offside line's there. If not, your nine has, has basically a metre of space to do what you want. So we'd often have a tactic where the person who's playing nine would dummy the pass, take a step of which no one could still touch you, and then put a tiny little grubber in just behind the guy that's inside the first defender, and then you'd be exploring five or six metres of space in behind their defensive line. That's brilliant. Which is why I was really surprised that Danny Kerr didn't do that, because that's his game. He's got an incredible touch. But it goes down to the fact that they had a game plan, didn't adjust to it. So you know yeah, 15's well, well, would be slightly different.
1: Fifteens but... is hard though, isn't it? Because I mean trying to get fifteen men to do the set you know, to change strategy just off the cuff, is difficult enough. I mean, actually, it's difficult enough to install the strategy in the first place, let alone to change it. And I think they work so hard on certain things. When something like this Italy game happens, it's so, so rare that it was just incredibly difficult.
2: Yeah, and again, it goes down to the fact that it's an 80-minute game. You know, you're not having to to play at the sevens type of format where you get you know perhaps three or four minutes or a half time seven minutes where you can then say All right, okay this is what we're doing this is what we're going to do differently so i get that it's different but still the fact that you're educating players on a sevens pitch to react to probably five or six different defensive systems in just 15 minutes shows that they've got great understanding as rugby players they're not you know they're not oh, well some teams probably south africa are slightly more robotic but if you look at you know Some of these England players, specifically Scotland playmakers, and even some of the Welsh boys who really are standing up of late, they've got great understanding of rugby. That That's not rugby sevens, that's not rugby fifteens. It's just rugby. Do you think sevens is more experimental then than than fifteens? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, not just on the pitch, but off it as well. We, we were one of the first teams to be using GPS regularly. We were one of the first teams to be looking at some of the science behind the performance side of things, largely because Ben was an absolute nerd with it. So Ben yeah. Ryan... You know, he's known for his biomechanics or whatever he wants to call it. You uh, know, he, he had genuine interest of how we could explore supplementation, training systems, jet lag protocols, and the lot we were. Really? Oh, if I, well, I do talk about it now professionally in terms of my work corporately. If you've got an employer or an employee who you want to get better, why would you not look at every single biometric possible just to gain insight on them? So I could tell you, you know, my jet lag protocols, I could tell you the fact that it would take me, X amount of days to get over a certain amount of travel because it was all documented in a watch we had to wear for three weeks what? It was all incredibly detailed.
1: See when I hear uh, When I hear the word protocol mixed in with sport, uh, my my mind automatically goes to bro science I'm not saying that the, that, 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 that is that far, far, um, far from it, but just explain what a jet lag protocol involves
2: so basically, we wore a watch which monitored our movement and our sleep and our activity um, and had to do like a bit of an anecdotal database with it as well. Yeah. Uh, and from that was a comprehensive study. This is of 15 people who were then looking at their adaptation to jet lag. And we derived the knowledge probably wasn't far off what some people suggest, that it takes you round about six time zones to affect your circuitry patterns. Sorry, so you, you, your, your what patterns? circadian patterns, how you sleep. Right, okay. And therefore, how you perform. So if we knew, for example, we would be going to New Zealand, which would be plus 13 hours time zone, you get six for free, if you like, off the bat, which people who go to Dubai would well argue. But yeah. then it would take you up to seven days to get back into the normal circadian pattern. We also realised that flying... Anti-clockwise around the world, which was far harder to then How cope with. So let me just work that out. Flying apparent.
1: anti-clockwise around the world. I'm just, sorry, I'm just trying to work out which way that is. Okay, yeah, so exactly, going towards exactly. Russia,
2: east. Yeah. So we would go. We would go London to Wellington. Yeah. This was back in the day. London to Wellington. So not GMT to plus thirteen, then to to Vegas, which was minus eight. Uh, so okay. in the space of two weeks, we would go from GMT to plus 13, to minus 8, to GMT. And that took us up to 12 days to get over. Wow. So how would you deal with it? Well, you'd have to change the way you train. So now, um, certainly the the protocols have changed since I was playing because people are a bit more adept to it, having done it for more years. But I was chatting with the England conditioning team and they basically made all their team for three days before they left. Stay up later, so they changed slowly their circadian patterns. So they were up later in the day, staying up later in the night, training later in the day to adapt to the wellington or sydney um time zones which worked they didn't have that much jet lag uh, in terms of their anecdotal evidence so yeah the science behind it's really interesting And again that's why i've kind of got hold of this prospect as, as a worker and i was someone who understands business as well as sport and say so, well why does the business world not do what sport's been doing yet yet everyone in the business world would admire sport for their performance
1: yeah, that's a very, very good point. So, were you training later at night in the UK to make sure that you were ready for when you went east? If I make sense,
2: yeah, 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 yeah definitely. Uh, and then, sometimes you do it the other way. So, if you were going minus, you'd, you'd then adjust the fact that you'd be in different times. You'd be, yeah training different times. We actually went to the point of testing our testosterone. So we would have these spit tests every three hours. You'd have to check, wake up, check it, wake up, check it, wake up, check it. to so actually dictate when you would be best to train. So some of us in the squad were better in the evening. Some of us were better in the morning. So again, that became very individualized in terms of best performance. Hang on. We had one Marine who was pretty much on guard 24-7. So,
1: <laughs> so when are you best to train, according to, to the spit test? Just explain that
2: to me, because I have no idea what you mean. Well, you do weights, well, JB. I've seen you. You're a deadlifter, aren't you? You're you're a... Oh, I'm I couldn't. I couldn't. The office. I
1: couldn't walk. Uh, after... <laughs> I hadn't deadlifted for three for about two years because of my back. So no way am I. Uh...
2: Oh, it's Phil? Phil's the big dog on the. Oh, Phil. Uh, the uh, what,
1: um, what was he? Seven? Uh, eighty kg. After that, and he did two hundred and eighty. No, sorry, two hundred
2: and thirty. Yeah. They smashed it. So basically, that would then mean that if you're doing your weight training, you need to know when it's best to get these peaks of testosterone. So. Um, you could find out when it was best to train and some people produce more testosterone in the morning some people in the evening so why would you then not think about how to maximize the weights you were doing same with cortisol some people will produce more stress after a certain type of food type of meal the stress hormone can be quite an inhib- inhibitor, inhibitor when it comes to uh, training specifically and that's when you start talking about risk and injury management you know that's the type of insight top level teams will get and, and explore
1: um, and not to visit too many things back again but are you implying you can get stressful meals?
2: Uh, well, I hate to say it, and there'll be a lot of people upset by this, but, yeah, even things like coffee can, can <sighs> induce a little bit of, of cortisol, hence the old belly fat, JB. You know, I put I it down as the old middle-aged spread or whatever. But, uh, yeah. now, now you're talking my language. Yeah, yeah, lots of things. It goes in again to another test we do, um, and I actually ended up doing a bit of work for them. There's a company called York Test who are looking at food sensitivity testing. Yeah. And that was a way of using one little finger prick of blood to look at your IgG antibody reaction to basically say if you were sensitive to different types of food or not.
1: Amazing.
2: So it's all sort of interesting, isn't it? It's yeah. Really interesting. So what were you sensitive to? Well, annoyingly, egg whites and egg yolk, which for someone who's having about fifteen to twenty eggs a week and a load of protein shakes at the time. Yeah. not Ideal to hear. But then at the same time, was suffering from migraines. I'm like, I'm a moron. You know, I, I didn't get this test age twenty-one when it would have comprehensively changed the way that I work and live. So, yeah, I learned, learned pretty hard on that one. Um, I did it on a fair few people, I ended up working for them, but my, my missus had an absolute shocker. She was, like, sensitive to yeast, gluten, dairy, no. eggs. It's like, just don't eat. But, no, she uh, she wasn't particularly symptomatic, which is the factor, that if you're symptomatic, then you've got to explore it. If you're not, if, it, you know, if it's more, like, anecdotal, that you feel bloated after bread, then, yeah, you probably are going to be sensitive to it. Will it change your life? Probably not. But for some people, it can be really impactful.
1: So for an athlete, not liking eggs, or no, sorry, not being able to eat eggs, that's quite a big deal, actually, because that's one of the few things which is a go-to for almost everyone.
2: It is, yeah. And that's a little bit of the debated point with the science behind it, because some would argue you'd have that much of it, you can then almost show an intolerance to it or a sensitivity to it, but actually not being symptomatic. And it's exactly the same if you've ever done a psychometric test, some people who do that Oh my god! I've just been told I'm not a salesperson. yet. I've worked a <laughs> in sales. It's like yeah, we're talking about natural, natural behaviours here. So things you aren't inclined to do. You can teach yourself to do anything, but you know it's it's the same thing with with the food sensitivity. It's only if you're symptomatic. Um, but then if you were in a changing room full of bloody blokes, you'd know the fact that some people in that room should not be ingesting protein shakes for fear of, you know, the smell that's often produced.
3: Uh
1: yes yes well said. Well it's taken me th- uh, 32 years to realize that I'm not a natural rugby player. So uh yeah you know, <laughs> it
2: happens to everyone. It happens to many Welsh people that doesn't it. They all believe <laughs> a
1: rugby player. I'm Northwalian not Welsh. There's a big big difference.
2: Really, All right. so you're technically more of a scouser than a Welsh. Oh,
1: do you know what? It does break my heart that because uh, yeah, you make a strong point. I mean, it's where scousers come on holiday and never leave. So uh, yeah, yeah, I'm kind of I I live among scousers and and uh, next to South Williams. It's a it's a real it's a real tough break. It's why I went. <laughs> it's uh, why I moved to Manchester.
2: That's fair. Yeah, yeah. There'd be a depth with crime at least.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> uh, just going back. Just going back to sevens then. Um, of all the places that you, that
2: that you visited, where has been the most remote? Most remote. I'm still waiting for my invite to Fiji to Ben's three acres, but that's not yet happened. Um, most remote. I mean, there were some beautiful places in South Africa. We used to go. One was George on the Wine Route, which was absolutely epic. We stayed in this beautiful like wood lodge cabin, just set back from the beach. It was amazing. Used to love that tournament, and that was relatively remote. And it used to be after the back of Dubai which was pretty full-on and fake. So that kind of contrasts from absolute, you know, you know what Dubai can be like, where everything I, is just materialistic. To do you this, know what?
1: I've never that. actually been, and I kind not, of... There? No, it's what, it doesn't really appeal to me except for the Sevens. I imagine it's like going to the Trafford Centre for two weeks. <laughs>
2: um, yeah, it's very morally. Yeah, you're right in that. Uh, the love why I say that. A lot of Welsh people go for here. There's a lot of balls there. But... Um, <laughs> I think it's one of these things for the sevens weekend. It's just all in; everything is there. It's like a rugby club atmosphere with you know tens of thousands of people socially, and then the the World Rugby Sevens as well. It, I mean, that's pretty epic, but just very different. So I, I used to love the fact that Wellington would be before Vegas. Again, you go from tr- tranquillity and be up the ocean side, It'd be all about coffee shops and relaxing to so this just debaucherous place that was just all neon lights. Mm. I- um, and how much of it do you, do you get to see if you're actually on on the tour? And this is what I'd argue, you know, the glamour side of things, it, it's not you get probably a day off. I'm never going to be it because the day you, you are traveling the world, you go mm. to places people don't you know ever dream of going. But you don't get a massive amount of time because, you know, you're there to do a job. You're there for performance. You're there to make sure you're maximizing every single aspect. I mention all the science behind what you do what good would it then be going for an eight-hour jolly day before a tournament if you've had all this preparation into trying to be the best you can be? So there's a lot of pressure on the players within that. They'll get usually a day off three days or two days before the tournament mm-hmm. actually starts. So you say your Thursday or your Wednesday, you'd have a bit of time to explore. Some of the boys in Sydney went to Manly. Some of the guys in Cape Town would have a look out on the, on the Mandela Island and Robin Island and see all that kind of thing. So it's... Um, exploratory you you are a tourist but probably only for a day or two uh, and sometimes a day after if you're lucky but yeah it's it's a slight bubble i must say you, you have a lot of hotel rooms a lot of time on the bus a lot of time uh in in the stadium having downtime you know just trying to make sure that the 12 15 18 hours you can be at a stadium you're not going mental you've got to keep myself up and down up and down so. well
1: so. I, I mean there is a lot made of um team building in rugby and that usually links back to drinking and going out and that sort of bonding um how did the sevens a sevens team particularly led by someone like ben ryan who's all about science how did you guys approach that did you have to like schedule it in was was that treated with the same sort of scientific approach
2: um not as scientific scheduled in yes Um, and largely led by players as most good social teams should be you know Mm. it was a case of We'd be down at the Lensbury. I dread to think how many days I spent at the Lensbury in that three-year period. But it probably would be significantly more than it was at home. Yeah. Uh, so you'd have outlets and options to go around that locality, or you you just spending time with each other. I mean, a lot of time you just sat playing cards. The thing that I don't, I don't envy now, is this is the social media world because, you know, certainly when I was playing um, previously, it was all about just sitting around you're playing your cards you're having that interaction you you get to know each other really really well which is why you ma- you maintain relationships
3: mm.
2: now it's and i see the team rooms i see what it's like without sounding like a ridiculously old father here um but it's changed the dynamics definitely different it's not as um it's not as probably social in some regards so and that and, and certainly the, the laps around afterwards and the few drinks you'd have after a tournament it's all different now um so that the team bonding is is definitely different but then they're never you'd never say it'd be more professional than it is now so i'm gonna
1: ask you a ridiculous question now uh, bordering on juvenile but
2: <laughs> it's not to talk in opposites is it like we did before
1: <laughs> we'll get into that later <laughs> <laughs> no if you've got something as in depth right as um as jet lag protocol yeah. I'm I'm amazed that you don't have like a post night out protocol or the guys in the sports science team did any kind of research like t- 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 how alcohol would affect you if you had a tournament next week and you'd been on a night out
2: from the previous tournament. Mm. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, there probably has been studies into that and certainly alcohol can affect your performance, undoubtedly, because the dehydration point. But you'd never go out on your first couplet. So when you look at a tournament in twos, you mm. wouldn't go out after the first one because you knew You'd be on a flight the next day for ah, so okay. three to twelve hours, perhaps even more, to then get to the next venue. Um, so that that was always a, a bit of a mute point. If you did, you may well keep it a bit quiet. But you, the thing is, you, you go through that much emotion in a sevens tournament. You know, you talk about a weekend of six incredibly hard games, emotional roller coaster, you're up, you're down, you need to relax. There's this absolute melting pot of of. Energy and emotion. That sometimes you just need players to just go out and just you know go and have a couple of beers, go and you know let loose a little bit. Which which happened, which needed to, and that's good management, isn't it? It's good leadership to know when that is, to know how it's done, and, and to really manage that. So that was always, again, probably player led with a little bit of guidance from the from the management. Mm. You know when to do that type of thing, and that's where you have to be human about it. You know, science can tell you the most ridiculous things in the world, and it's was actually sat in a world rugby panel where science was basically dictating that. You could pick the best seven players that would that would win games, and like, well, hang on a minute. These are human beings. You, you can't dictate a team environment. You don't understand yeah. communication. You can't account for, you know, interaction and, and relationship. And you know, Saracens' model—they're oh, not amazing
3: isn't team it?
2: because they've got a good game plan. They inherently know each other inside and out, probably from the fact that they're socialized. It was the same with Harnaquins when they were dominant. The one thing Dean Richards was always about was getting their social right, and if you get that right, you get honesty, you get a team buy-in, you get probably a lot more ability of having awkward conversations. You know, if, if you make people accountable on the pitch and off the pitch, then they're gonna be a better rugby players for it. And you look at New Zealand, I guess they're slightly different because they come across as being very strict.
1: <sighs> yeah, very, they actually, are quite, I mean, idea. I have had the fortune or misfortune of being around their, their operation. And it is incredibly strict actually, I mean not not I don't mean um around the lads when you know maybe they're on downtime, but when they were training, we went to visit their camp during when they went to um chicago, and yeah it is it it's on complete lockdown.
2: How did you fall into sevens rob um it was an interesting one again, it probably comes back to the point of you know what is the pathway for a sevens player, but after the 2004 World Cup in Durban Mm. Mike Friday who was then the England Sevens coach put in a new system of each premiership club had to release three players um, as part of the wider England Sevens squad and then there'd be a core group of players that would be represented um, most of the tournaments like your your Ben Gollings, Rob Thirlby's back in the day as it was Mm. Um, and probably a little bit before that I was accounted um, as one of these developing players I was then an open side Really? Listening to a centre. Yeah, I played uh, England 16s as a seven. with Haskell as my six. Really? England 19s as a seven. Sorry, yeah, even 19s. Yeah, that was right. So Haskell was six. Like there was Mark Lambert, Rob Webber, Richard Blay, Sean Cox. Uh, Dylan Hartley was then a prop with Rob Webber. They, they both then moved to hooker. Uh
1: now you you, um, you were in Leeds with Rob, were you not? Yes. Because that's yes, where yes. that's where he started out from.
2: Yeah, yeah, well, I played against Robson, since I was about five. Mm. Um, yeah, so that was basically it. They get this cohort of players that they believe would be good at Sevens, create a young England Sevens team Ben Foden, Topsy Ojo, Lee Dixon. Uh, and then it was aided also by a really strong Samurai setup. And, you know, I have a lot to account for with Samurai and my development of Sevens because, you know, you're straight out of school, you're pretty much a fresher. And then I got opportunity to go to New York to play in the tournament. And I was like, uh, yeah, let's think about that. Two-day tournament, seven-day trip. It was just amazing. Um, and same with Amsterdam. It was a really good tournament, really competitive tournament, beating the British Army, which was unheard of mm-hmm. at the time, as an invitational team. So there's a lot of good players coming through that system that um, you know, some then opted to go fully 15s and, and move away from 7s, but I always had it in the back of my mind that it was something I wanted to do again. So I did it again in 2000 and 2008, 2009, whilst playing for Leeds, which was ridiculous because you're going from 7s to 15s. It just didn't work.
1: Yeah, that sounds was, very, very difficult. And you're right. It was. I don't hear many 7s players playing 15s now. Ben Gollins obviously used to play on the, wing, on the wing at Harlequins. That's one of the few I can remember, y- yourself and him.
2: Um, Well, at the time, there was a fair few that were doing both. So Kev Barrett, who's now the conditioner at Saracens, he was at Exeter. Chris Cracknell was at Exeter, then went to Worcester. Oh, yeah. Um, Dan Norton was fleetingly at Gloucester. James Rodwell was at Moseley. And then they looked at, okay, well, the way to make this work is probably to look at more championship players. So then brought in a lot more young championship players or even young university players. So Tom Mitchell, it's a painful line to say, but it's true, has never played a senior game of rugby. Really? He's never played a senior game of 15s, yeah. I mean, he's played varsity. Yeah. So when he did that then got picked back up into the England 7 sub, so there's this kind of really twisted, tangled approach. Of which now, if you're an academy player, you're not playing a lot of rugby because the eighteen league's gone down the pan. Where where are you going to get your outlet? Well, one may could well be looking at you know sevens involvement, but you then got to get the buy-in of all the directors of rugby, which rightly so, their investments. It's not going to be as easy as people think, but it's an exposure to an incredibly tough environment.
3: Yeah,
1: I'm Bob, not going to get on my soup. Uh, uh, sorry, Rob, c- carry on.
2: I'll just say Marcus Watson did it really well. Went from 15s to 7s to 15s again knowing that he had the 7s experience as well but you know you you talk about that type of model it was great to be able to say well he's done it but Mm. then he went back and got injured (laughs) did his hamstrings I don't think Dean Richards was too happy.
1: Yeah it's a it's a strange one really because I don't want to get on my soapbox and talk about young players not getting game time because I think this is one of the most damaging things in the sport at the moment you get so many lads in academies who are not playing rugby they might get 10 games a year, of which six of them are A-League and not everyone has an A-League team. So, yeah. you know, lads need lads need a lot of rugby and they don't get any of it, particularly if you come from school and you've done, what, training three times a week and maybe two games a week to nothing.
2: Yeah, well, I knew lads at 18 that were playing 90-odd games a year, which I don't condone. I think it's a horrendous idea. But in terms of rugby education, you get it very quickly. Yeah, um, at 19, that's what you want to do, though, isn't it? At partly, I think you have know, got to manage it because now they're not they're not 19 year old kids, are they? They're 19 year old men. They are phenomenally big because they've done five years of weights and conditioning, so that they're much more adept to the the collision and physicality of it than you would probably ever you know think that. Certainly, we were <laughs> at 18, 19. But I mean, this is where and, okay, I don't want to get my soapbox about it all because I, I was there. I was in the coalface face. The championship is an absolute breeding ground for great English talent. You look at Saracens. Yeah. There is like talking about Saracens. Whenever I commentate on them. They've always got eight to 12 people that have come through a championship system. You know, I was at Leeds or then turned into Yorkshire Carnegie with Alex Ozovsky. I could have told you in a heartbeat this kid was going to play for England. He was incredible. But what he did was take him out of any type of, you know, premiership environment where he would have been holding a bag for a year or two, got a degree in economics, got a real insight of professional rugby through playing at Carnegie and started a fair few games. And now look at him. You know, he, he, if you ask him, a big part of his education would be from the championship. And that's mostly saracen's players it would be from playing in the championship well I it's think... hard to believe that owen farrell was once due registered with bedford <laughs> was <laughs> these he the types of, yeah these are the relationships that. that people need to develop
1: yeah yeah see I, I think saracens are absolutely spot on because lots of those lads out that came from the academy they do have the occasional big name like um or shalt or scott i think they've gone yeah. through them all um but actually, yeah, you're right. It's like the prop from Jersey, or you know, Duncan Taylor from London, from London Scottish. Or was he London Welsh, or London Scottish?
2: Uh, Scottish, I think, because he came from was it Glasgow Edinburgh before it. Yeah, they've got they've got a load of them. I I always do a bit of research on them before, and it's, it's staggering to see their kind of journeys and where they've come from. I mean, Jamie George did a bit. Um, they've, they've got so many players that have. have not been in an environment where they're playing Saracens and they'll just drop down to Bedford and play regularly at their level, which is great for the Bedford players, Mm. great for the Saracens players. It it works at every level. And that's why, you know, you talk about these younger players, there's obviously Sevens there, there's Championship Rugby. There's a lot more rugby than they probably realise that is available to them. But a lot of it probably comes down to a little bit of ego. Like, why are they so keen on staying as a squad player in the Premiership and not playing is beyond me. I, oh, because I, 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 it, there's so
1: much ego is so much of their personal development wrapped up in the fact that they are a quote unquote Premiership player, regardless of games played.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I, mean if, I was fortunate when I was young; I was I was playing regularly, so it was never it was never a suggestion to perhaps look at playing somewhere else. But I, I wouldn't in a heartbeat because, first of all, I, I love rugby. You know, yeah. i I'd, I'd happily play anywhere that would um, would allow me to. But certainly, in terms of getting better, you've you've got to play rugby to get better, and that's. That's what I believe sevens can offer. That, you know, talk about the players that have come through a sevens system, you know, your Danny Cares, Matthew Tate, Tom Vandels, finishers largely. Um, yeah. but Haskell Haskell played England sevens, Tom Reese at the time played England sevens. Some really good back rowers as well, got an insight of of that level of of play. So- I think they're the types of players you want to kind of Look at to, to get involved.
1: So, do England Sevens have, for want of a better word, recruitment sergeants going up and down the championship trying to tempt these players into the Sevens fold? No. How's Should
2: they work? probably? I mean, all down to ultimately Simon Amor. He's got one of the widest-spanning and toughest remits I've seen because he's a bit of an outpost. You know, he's, he's he's managing the players, he's coaching the players, he's leading the team, he's writing the systems, writing the programs, and then also looking at pipeline and getting these. Academy players to be either dual registered or whatever, whatever they want to do to get them somehow incorporated into a seven sphere. So, really difficult if a manager be, and I don't know. So how it's going to go?
1: So how is Simon Amor getting his getting his players? Is, is he waiting for them uh, to call him, or is he on scouting
2: the championship? How does it work? He's, he's probably speaking to a lot of academy managers, a lot of head coaches. Probably not. As many directors as rugby, but I don't know that. Um, just saying, look, you know, how can we work together? And that, and fair credit to Mike Friday when it was all back in the day, and the and the Premiership regulations were coming in, and, and everything was happening with the Premier Rugby. To have every single team nominate three players was was brilliant. That is amazing, it. isn't it? Actually, and that's the New Zealand model. So you, you would look at it and say, we've got a group of players that not now traditionally. New Zealand used to have a group of players, say five or six, that they would supplement with other regions and franchises. But, you know, the reality is now you can earn a ridiculous salary in the Premiership not having actually picked up a rugby ball. Uh,
1: just a quick question, and it, it is linked in a way. Have you ever played rugby league uh, a competitive standard, Rob?
2: No, I haven't played it. Um, I trained a fair bit for it. Um, one of my coaches at school used to be head coach of Hall KR. I always thought I was going to do it at some point, and then when it came transpired that I finished playing 7s in 2013. I was then offered a trial at both Huddersfield and Warrington um, and a little bit of Hull KR again but then I just thought you know, it wasn't the right time to do it. Rhinos was always on the doorstep yeah. I'd love to have explored that. Luther Burrell actually did that for a while. He went. Did through. he? I didn't know that Yeah, Luther went, he did a pre-season with him. did three or four months with him. did a few games Um. so he uh, he was one of those again there's, there's loads of people, the reality is the other way around would make more sense I would look at a significant of rugby league players that could play rugby union, and specifically sevens within that. Because, That's exactly where I was going next. Yeah, it's, it's a no-brainer. And the other thing is, and I, I've got to be careful because I am in the heart of rugby league territory here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> People walking around outside my door now <laughs> with the Yeah, and
1: they're not a crowd that you want
2: to upset either, are they? They're not. No, they're not. They're not. Uh, they're, they're not as
1: forgiving as union fans.
2: No, um, no, it is weird. There's, there's this. Um, I won't go into it, actually, but one of the things about rugby <laughs> is the salary cap. So, and people don't know this, and I, I believe it's common knowledge, but it's a 2020 principle that only 20 players can get paid more than 20,000 pound. Yes, and that's usually on the numbers of their back. So that is a way of looking at players of significant ability that would do incredibly well at sevens as an education to a wider pool of 15s. Now, if you took, you know, go back 15 years or 10 years even, look at a young, fresh Chris Ashton who was on whatever was on at Wigan. To ingrain him in the, in that rugby mentality, to develop his finishing ability, why not have a look at him in the seventh for a year?
3: Oh, exactly. you
2: go out for him, buy the contract or you know, pay for his contract, set him up, get him playing, and then, you know, luckily he had the education of in the championship with Northampton and, and rocking up three thousand and forty two tries, whatever it was. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. They're the things you've got to look at, and that's why rugby league is a hotbed. Because and I stand by this, I believe rugby league players are the most skillful players. There's no reason now why England's backline has been transformed from a foul and ford combination whose skill set's sublime because they've been absolutely ingrained with rugby league all their life.
1: Do You know what there is really something in that.
2: Well, it's because you take away you take away rucks, scrums, lineouts, what are you going to practice? <laughs> Offloads, carries and tackles. Then that's why rugby league players and certainly Australian rugby league players are the best rugby yeah. players in the world. Yeah,
1: because I remember. I'm sure you might need to correct me here. I'm sure that Wigan Warriors won Middlesex Middlesex Sevens once.
2: Yeah, I was uh, I was watching that one when Wigan won, and then I was actually playing it when Bradford won. And um, Wigan, for example, Wigan's team was insane. Jason Robinson, Twingamala, Farrell, Radlinski. Um, <laughs> That's is insane, and, isn't it? Yeah, it was it was absolute joke. I no wonder, but they won it. This is the stat. They they scored a try every three passes. That's how good they were, and all they did was defend in the rugby league system, kind of push up, and they thought it was the easiest thing in the world.
3: Yeah, I
1: bet. And if
2: Bradford won it. They did exactly the same thing. But then, if you watch the rugby league nines, they try and play rugby league. Like, well, no, play nines, try a bit of sevens, and then you'll 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 kill it. So there's definitely things happening in the Southern Hemisphere. The talk around the nines concept is really growing.
1: Yeah, is, is it not tens that they're into at the moment? Was it Nines? Have I got that wrong? Tens Rugby Union. Yeah, ten, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ten, tens Rugby Union. Because that, that's, um, I think Drew that, Mitchell's playing in that this year.
2: Yeah, he was playing in it for too long. There was like a World Club Tens, which the same guy that's behind US 7s was was helping set up Terry Burwell. He was a, he's a big uh, he's visionary of, of how the game should be played in some way. So he was behind a little bit of that when it was in London. And then oh. I think the same wall has been used down south in the Southern Hemisphere. But... The thing that would be really interesting is if the nines concept takes off in Rugby League and then people are like going, oh, this this idea could work well commercially. Um, it hasn't, I don't think, in Auckland. It's failing a bit there. But it's actually in the Commonwealth Games. So in the Gold Coast next year, there will be a Rugby League nines as well as a Rugby Union sevens.
1: Oh, that's brilliant. Mm. But I mean, they are effectively the same game. Well, they're very similar games.
2: Yeah, I'd, I'd love to see a bit more cross-pornation in it because if you took a Rugby Union coach to that, it would change their game. And seeing me take a Rugby League coach to Rugby Union 7s, it would change that game. Exactly. So kick-
1: or maybe they should do a, a final and they play 8s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I
2: like it. Uh, that's the other thing. You know, Bobby Skinstad's grown this nice little um, concept in South Africa for 10s because if you look at what 7s tries to be in Rugby Union, having the ability to have second routers and potentially some hookers involved as well from the front five you're much more of an inclusive game so if you're world rugby and you're looking at the concept of a shortened version of the game you know they were suggesting they're missing a trip by not looking at tens rather than sevens where it's all usually scrum halves wingers and maybe the odd number eight
1: it yeah it it, it does start to get tricky though doesn't it because you get stuck in that cricket thing where do we play one day do we play test do we play 2020 you know and it doesn't it kind of doesn't stack up you can have two codes and that's it
2: yeah, you can, but I think you know in terms of the people that are dictating the way the game's going, you'd look at broadcasting and how it's formatted in that environment. The reason why I quite like the Premiership Sevens is because it's a two-hour concept. It's hell on earth to think they've got to go back-to-back to play a Sevens game, mm-hmm. but the concept is great because it's entertaining, it's two hours. It was, it was actually um, Lawrence DiVallio talking at a World Rugby convention about fan engagement during a game, and he says in an 80-minute game, by 80 minutes or by 60 minutes, people are bored. So how do you keep it fresher? How do you keep it more entertaining? And if you look at Sevens as the same model, you know, if you look at how broadcasting can change because you've got these short, sharp games, mm. it's going to be more of a highlight package. The world now want stimulation; they want to be entertained for short, sharp bursts. And look at the NFL now; they make you know what could be an eight-minute game into a six-hour event, but throw in entertainment, they throw in crowd interaction, they throw in. You know, well, they've got
1: real issues. I mean, like everyone looks at the NFL and some panacea, and for a long time it was, but this year crowds are down. And do you know what their biggest worry is? Go on. It's that uh, the, the experience you get at home from the broadcast is much, much better than the experience in the stadium. So, for instance, Levi Stadium, which is the new one, uh, San Francisco playing, they spent something like $22 million on Wi-Fi. Um, look at uh, the Cowboys. They've got the two biggest screens in yeah. the world yeah. because they're worried about fan, about fan engagement. And now the fans at Cowboys Stadium watch the game on, on the screen even though the game is in front of them. So it's a real problem that, that, that they're facing.
2: Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And that's that kind of aligns the point I was mentioning about mm. people do get bored very quickly. So how do you make it more of an entertainment package? You bring in the halftime, acts. You bring in the short, sharp appearances. And that again, going back to the Sevens format, it's why it is such good fun, because in between every single game, and this sounds preposterous, but in Sydney it was rocking because there was robot cam, because there was Kiss Cam, because there was Twerk Cam, would you believe it? But in terms of the entertainment you get, it's you know, it's all inclusive. It's not just about the rugby, which is why it's a festival of action. It really is something you have to really see because the sevens coverage of the broadcasting is great, and I would say that'd be slightly biased. Yep the actual live action is second to none. Mm. Um, Just out of interest, when you are at
1: Leeds, were you playing with, were you playing for, in fact, no, actually, I'll come around to that in in a second. When you played Bradford, were you playing the team which included um, Chantaine Harpy? Or was it a little bit bit after that?
2: In sevens? No, 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 no. He, I don't think he played. Did he play in that? In the, so, uh, when Bradford were really good, year, it's like Paul Cook, Viner Nicola. Yeah, he played. John Feely was their star player. He was a rugby union player, ironically. Mm. Uh, he was their gas man who ended up doing a load of samurai rugby. But, no, the, the big – I mean, this is ridiculous. When we had the league's Tykes team in, as we were, we had Rob Burrow and Danny Maguire. Really? They were was, was terrible. I mean you think if Rob Burrow played sevens now or even you know in his pomp he would carved up as would Danny Maguire but they just didn't get it they didn't really understand the concept but um oh,
1: wow so uh, how much like cross training did you get do with the Leeds Rhinos guys
2: yeah. well in in what 6 7 years at Leeds uh seven sessions
1: <laughs> oh really it, it, yeah, it's it not quite as fluid as i thought
2: no it, i mean again it, by the fact that we were just the poor siblings to their incredible success. And, you know, rightly so. You, you're you a Ruby league player. You're at the top of the game. You've won the last three championships, yet, you know, you, you're basically aligned with a club who get as much, if not more, financially and, and you know, I, I allowed the same utilities. It must have been slightly bizarre for them. And you, you can't disagree with the fact it's a slightly different game in terms of where the players come from and what they're about. So I think there was a little bit of a, of a clash there at times. But I, I was an absolute student of the game. I used to love watching their skill sets. The uh, the second, probably the top two training sessions I've ever had. One was with Jimmy Lowe's extra League, then rugby union coach, and one was with Brian McDermott, who was the current rugby um, coach for Leeds Rhinos. He came across did a few sessions for Carnegie. So, oh, that'd be um, great. Oh, it was so good. I mean, he's a frightening bloke, but what a wonderful mind. Just to explain the simplest things. That again, you know, I mentioned the fact I make no bones about. I'm a nose of rugby. I am a, you know, a rugby nut. But he taught us things about a two-on-one that I never, ever thought about. And it's like a two-on-one. I've been doing this since I was six. This is one of the most coached things in rugby union, full stop. Yeah. He came up with an idea and a principle that they use that would change the way teams play. How? Well, it was basically on the premise that if you run at the near side of someone, so if you move a defender a foot, yeah. The defender outside of them has to move three foot. The defender outside of that has to move six foot. So if you can do a two-on-one where you stay straight and run dead straight, that person steps into you. The actual space to exploit is not that person, my attacker, running straight. It's him running at the space where the defender was. Uh... So he was the smart side of the hole, um, <laughs> which is interesting. But then the reason why rugby league has come more into union is what that then does is create an option outside of it where – if you're running for a short pass to to your right, for example, yeah the defender comes in and reads it, then the option to go out the back then gets into the third defender, so actually a two on one then turns into a three on two very quickly, yeah and, and it was just mind blowing and seeing it then with the rhinos and and that was the year we were actually doing quite a lot of sessions with them, so I probably maybe did a disservice saying seven there, but we did but probably four or five sessions back to back where it was us attacking with the rhinos and you, you start running these shapes outside of a Kevin Sinfield or a Rob Burrow or a Danny Maguire the legends of the game, you learn very quickly, you know, yeah. what it is for and, and their vision is just ridiculous. Like their ability to spot a gap three or four men away. Because it's all they do. It's all they do. When they're playing the League, they are constantly scanning, counting numbers, just seeing where space is and how to how to get into it
1: that that's all well the guy that gets um, a lot of praise kind of behind the scenes actually i say behind the scenes um because you know if you watch mainstream rugby media no one ever mentions him but um paul cook does a great job at sale and people and people don't realize so if you talk to any of the sale lads you know
2: you, you- said this at sale it's Deacon. Sorry, yes. Paul Deacon, thank you. Paul, Paul, Cook. Paul Cook is he's not is a coach. Not as a coach. But no, but he's the one that's transformed Doncaster. And if anyone's watched Doncaster in the last two years, you're like, oh my God, their attack's amazing. They've got rugby league systems. Yeah. Clive Griffiths started it, brought in Paul Cook. He is brilliant at exploiting space because they just understand manipulation of people. So Jimmy Lowe's classic case, same as Paul Deacon. He'd be seeing things like a 15-man driving mob and going, what the hell is this? Like, it's, a, it's a more Jimmy, it happens a lot in rugby. Like Big men go push forward. there's yeah. a trial. I don't care about that. There's 60 metres of space out there. And that's the kind of thing. You get these fresh insights and perspectives and actually a different take on things. That's really, really good. And you watch Sale play, as we did at the, at the weekend just gone, um, and you see Haley exploiting the space. You see Solomona benefiting from the fact that they're playing straight and the ball's going out the back. I mean, it gets a little bit technical in, in what they're bringing, but you've got for Sean Deacon who haven't played probably a minute of rugby union between them probably not but what a great combination to have them give their input with Steve Diamond's oversight I mean it's really good to see that kind of get into same with Andy Farrell you know I played against him he wasn't a great rugby player no but in terms of the understanding of systems and and structures and space he was great he talked a great game he just couldn't quite action it
1: yeah I'll tell you something quite sad actually when I heard that uh, bearing very mind I'm based in Manchester when I heard uh, Andy Farrell had moved over to Union I travelled down to Watford to watch his first game he got on for 20 minutes at Flanker it, it, it
2: wasn't worth it yeah I but, forgot about the whole debate about the ten, uh, the 12-6 chat
1: oh yeah yeah because he started off as a 6 and they realised that oh actually he can't rock and he was a little bit too big for a 12
2: he was big yeah well same as Burgess I guess
1: Yeah, and he didn't do too well at 12, did he? He was better at 6, though. He was a much better 6 than 12. They ruined him moving him back to 12. He didn't even play 12 at Bath, actually. He usually played 13.
2: Yeah, well, that's a sunny bill model, I guess. I mean, that, again, comes down to the fact that if you've got a rugby league player, one thing they're bloody good at is running hard. And if you can get them in that position be it at 12 or 13, to, to exploit their offloading game, then you're going to have a, a pretty powerful and potent backline, aren't you? But, yeah, yeah it's, it's food for thought. I'd, yeah, well, I, that one,
1: <laughs> I, I'll tell you the guy who I did think could have made it, uh, well, he did make it, but could have been really good uh, at Real Union 12 is Yestin Harris because he went to that World Cup, the 2003 World Cup, and he was just starting to get it and he looked brilliant and then
2: he signed back for Leeds. Yeah, I mean, he he did have a good crack at it, didn't he? I think he was one of those players that typified that vision, mm. um, probably with a rugby union background. With him being Welsh, I think, yeah, he he understood the game. He a was not bit. Welsh. So, <laughs> so, he, he didn't sound Welsh. But he he just was called not Kesting Welsh. there a degree of Welsh in him there? Wow. Debatable. Yeah, um, well, debatable. But he did a lot of time um, just watching rugby union. Actually, when he was uh, when he was playing for Rhinos, he was always. I remember watching him watching us. um, Interesting guy, actually, in terms of his reading. He just um, probably didn't exploit Rebunion as much as he should have in terms of getting on with it. You're right that and the debacle of him then going back to Leeds and then to Bradford and things—it was all a bit sour, really. But
1: oh no, he came from Leeds didn't he? and he then went back to Bradford. That's what he did. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. Uh, which is yeah, it was a bit of a, an issue with the club at the time.
1: Well, there was always there's also the story. And I don't know if it's true, but I hope it is. The story of Kieran Cunningham, another great who apparently yeah. was Welsh. Uh, let's face it, we know Kieran Cunningham is not Welsh. Uh, and apparently the contract was on the table until they asked him, what position are you going to play? And nobody had a clue. So then it kind of slowly withdrawn.
2: Yeah, built like a hooker with a pass of a nine with a vision of a ten. Like, what the hell would you do with Kieran Cunningham? I'd just let him just do what he wants. He could be like an enforcer just going around.
1: Yeah, he could work it out. People. Now,
2: before, go in. Um,
1: before I let you go, because you've been very generous with your time. Um did you when you were at Leeds were you with uh, Stuart Lancaster
2: well yeah I mean I cite Lanny as being the most influential person in my career without doubt I mean he picked me at 15 from Yorkshire Schoolboys as my head coach at the time Mm -hmm. as well as Rob Webber and Jordan Crane and a fair few people to be fair David Doherty Danny Kerr Michael Cusack who got captain Scotland all kind of under his tutelage Kieran Mile Um, so all these kind of players that are indebted to what he did and, and you know obviously some change of opinion on it throughout the years but he was someone who saw something in me mm-hmm. as, a, as a young seven, believed in it, pushed my sevens, you know, encouraged everything about my game, and I've got I've got a massive debt of gratitude to him what, in every element. Really,
1: what do you think? Okay, so uh, I'm not gonna lie; I've been very harsh about Stuart Lancaster's record on uh, on the podcast on egg chasers in particular. Um, what do you think his best role is? within rugby because even though I was harsh uh, on him as an international coach I think he's got some amazing things to give to union I'm just not sure it is as a director of rugby
2: or a or a head coach uh I don't well, this is this is kind of a, a massive can of worms it because in in rugby circles there are very few directors of rugby there are head coaches who yeah. move upstairs there are performance directors, of which they should have the sole control of the club, but ultimately don't because directors of rugby then feel like they're somehow undermining them. Irrelevant of that, Sure Lancaster is incredible uh, at what he did, mm. set standards, at uh, living those standards and, you know, whatever people would cause a cliche. he he, creates, he created cultures because he was so ingrained with psychology and motivation of players and understood it intently that it just worked as a performance fear. Like he, he was so true to his values, mm. certainly a young guy. And that's that's what you aspire to. I mean, like in terms of what he did when he inherited England to where they got to. And I believe a lot of what you see now is through that kind of belief and, and input that he gave to them, albeit with Eddie Jones spin on it, whatever it's the same players that got opportunity and grew their capabilities through his leadership. And yeah, okay, that World Cup, the end of it, and paper would show that it was a disaster. But I'm, I wouldn't judge him on that because he's done far too much in my life for never to be care about two or three performances in games. I think in terms of his values, his his beliefs and his attitude, I, I can't believe he's not heading up a, a massive part of performance Mm. See it, it, certainly in the RFU if not in in like a world rugby like he could be someone that goes into environments and and changes things that's, that's what he's good at.
1: Yeah, see feel free to tell me that I'm wrong. In fact, uh, I encourage it. And the, the way that I see it is that he has a ve- you know, he's a very skillful man at those things which you just mentioned. And I can see it in conjunction with someone who actually manages the day, you know, the The game day stuff, if you think you you can have like a tactical guy and then more of an overseer who does exactly that, like a performance manager who has coaches working for him, rather than in the England um, case, where he, I think I'm right in saying this, he was in charge of tactics and in charge of actually how they play, which I don't think is necessarily what he should have been doing.
2: Yeah, and that comes back down to the fact it's such a grey area in rugby of are you a performance guy or are you a coach? Now Lanny would always cite when he started getting into the grips of the media, which was about a third of his time spent managing, you know, a third of it with the leadership side of things, and a third of the coaching. It was the coaching thing he'd always miss. Yeah. So he would he would indicate that he wanted to do more coaching, hence why he's gone to Leinster as a as a, you know, coach in that regard. But I I think the things that he is good at would be more aligned to setting up performances to bring in coaches, to develop those coaches. Much as you see like your David Humphreys when he puts, you know, those type of coaches on the field and he'll oversee it, walking yeah. around. That type of thing, like a, a Cockrell, for example, where he would sit back and watch you Richard Blazers be on the pitch, you Jordan Murphys, who were very much more, I guess, gregarious in a certain way of, of understanding the players, putting their arm on the players, getting them motivated, understanding their you know, performances, but then having the structures in place. I, I think I think we'll see him again at some point higher up. Oh, I Dad, think so. Um I don't know what guys it might well be. Ian Richie might well suggest it could well be in his seat, who knows? But I I think what he brings to rugby is great. And and I'll always say that and I'll argue it's to the death of anyone that's, you know, saying his results would show differently. You know, I think traits and behaviours far outweigh a results page.
1: Yeah, I, I I agree. I I don't think his role is going to be, uh, I no. He's definitely a good coach. He can coach players to do things. I just think there's a difference between a coach and a guy that comes up with the game day tactics and yeah, the game no, That's I what agree I'm agree. trying to say.
2: And I would say also that he isn't the best coach I've ever had. He's one of the best leaders I've ever had, but definitely not the best coach. Because you know I mentioned about Jimmy Lowe's. He was absolutely incredible in, mm. in what he did as a coach. Ben Ryan back in two thousand nine, two thousand ten again remarkable in what he did as a coach and, and they were very much separate to, to, to Lanny as a coach but I wouldn't ever question anyone's leadership skills more so than, than Stuart, certainly in my career
1: Yeah, yeah. well I'm very interested to see what Ben Ryan's going to do in 15s and I think
2: he's with Wales at the moment he's got a, Yeah, he's got a contract with them for a set number of days he was saying, so yeah, he's, um, he's going to be involved with all elements of it, interestingly also, they've also mentioned that they've got a Pacific Island tour, haven't they I think they're touring Fiji they are, oh, yes. Which is a clever thing to then have Ben Ryan in your camp for, I guess, as well as being pretty near to New Zealand if 85 more players are needed for this Lions tour, which I'm sure... <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, did, did you never fancy taking the obligatory holiday to uh, South Africa or Australia <laughs> just in case?
2: Just in case, With yeah, Work for Tom Court, pretty fair play to him. Well, it's more like the, uh, the Lambert and Butler approach of writing the name wrong on the team sheet, perhaps. But it's... Uh, <laughs> I think it's uh, it's one of those things that it? it's clever clever idea to go down to the Pacific Islands for that reason and, you know, having been there will I think change the way they play a little bit and he's been pretty vocal in his offloading opinion. But it changes the way people play, so you can't argue with it. You know, he spends a lot of time focusing on really simple things like grip and catch and pass and one handed passing and all this stuff that you know, I've, ne- I've never come across any of the rebutton coach that does much of that other no. than league coaches who do a lot of it. So
1: I have heard about the five points of contact using like um the, the grips of your fingers rather than catching with your palms, that kind of thing. But yeah, I've, so I've never they, really practiced they
2: it. Prestid, they'd always say you should, you should have prestards on your finger. Uh, sorry? The, well, the analogy of having prestards on your finger, so you hold the ball with your prestards rather than your uh, palm.
1: Yeah. Yeah, fingers well, sharp, that's sure. why I always thought that grip mitts were a joke, because if you're grabbing with <laughs> your, should it be grip
2: thimbles? Yeah. Well, yeah, ask Andy good about that one. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 probably slightly backed by Samurai on that again, but
1: excellent uh well rob you've been more than generous with your time where can we find you on social media and uh, give a shout out to your business and all that stuff please
2: yeah well i'm at, at rob vickerman nice and easy on that one i will be showcasing the events out in vegas and vancouver uh through dhl channels as well so that's uh a nice little genre to be going on. Uh, other than that, the, the concept of the um, consultancy is work athlete. So, if any of it did resonate, if people wanted to know more about how science can be used within businesses, I am, you know, obviously up and running and, and educating people and inspire them, and probably slightly scare them at the same time when I talk about science and how it can be used to better performance, but then also underpinned by being happier and healthier, which is, you know, what sport tells you very quickly if you're not if you're not either of those two, you're not going to do very well. So. Yeah, lots to be had corporately from the world of sport, I'm sure. And I'm excited to continue my journey within that. But always a chat, always a pleasure to chat, JB.
1: Fantastic. Well, next time you're on sale or I'm up in Leeds, I shall give you a bell. <laughs> Huge thanks to Rob. Uh, hopefully we'll have him on again very, very soon. Um, in the meantime, if you can think of anyone who you'd like me to speak to, whether it be an administrator, a player, a coach, absolutely anyone, let me know. Uh, always looking for different angles and different viewpoints to the game of rugby so uh, until then you can find me on Twitter at jbeardmore this podcast at the rugby dungeon and of course one last plug for it my new podcast last week in brexit as well it should be on iTunes by the time that you listen to this okay see you next week Bye bye